Welcome everyone to another edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Leupold. Thank you for joining me today. On today's episode, we're going to go back and look at some more examples of lesser magistrates uh, throughout history. Uh, it's kind of going to be the last episode that talks about that. We're going to look at the American colonies and the war for independence. But before that, we're going to start off with our law of the day or passage of the day. It's from the book of Numbers, chapter 5, verses 5 through 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel. When a man or woman commits any of the sins that people commit by breaking faith with the Lord, and that person realizes his guilt, he shall confess his sins that he has committed, and he shall make full restitution for his wrong, adding a fifth to it, and giving it to him to whom he did the wrong. But if the man has no next of kin to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for wrong shall go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of atonement with which atonement is made for him. And every contribution, all the holy donations of the people of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. Each one shall keep his holy donations. Whatever anyone gives to the priest shall be his. Okay, so this passage, basically, this law looks at how to handle those individuals in the covenant people of Israel who have a change of conscience, right? So, and it's very likely to be the case because it's quite difficult to catch people in the act of crime. Uh, you have to have two or three witnesses, first of all, and it's not a modern state. It's a very decentralized agrarian state. So the purpose of this law is to encourage repentance and restitution. Um, and as if you, if you noticed, the punishment is much less for those who on their own conscience um, try to make things right. So, in previous laws, if a thief were to steal something and were to be caught, he would have to pay it back plus uh, sometimes four times as much or five times as much as was taken. So, it's a, it's a hefty uh, fine and, and punishment for the thief who has basically not repented. He was caught with it. He did not turn himself in. In this case... Uh, someone who has a conscience uh, leads them to make it right. They, they, they are apologetic. He confesses his sin. He goes to make full uh, restitution for his wrong and only adds a fifth, so 20%. So instead of five times the amount, which an unrepentant thief would have to pay, a repentant thief who uh, tries to fix things on his own only pays uh, one-fifth, not five times, but uh, 20%. Now, this is a good thing that the punishment is not so firm that, that, that folks are deterred from making it right. So the whole system here is meant to encourage people to, to make things right on their own. Now, that does not mean, though, that the person does not have to pay something for what they did. Um, there's still consequences for sin, for, for the crime that was committed. And the victim needs to have some kind of restitution being made. It's just that it's, it's way much less if you confess your sin and seek to make it right on your own rather than wait for someone to investigate, find you, and arrest you. 
Now, the purpose of this, you know, the paying of the of money back, it should be paid back to the person whom you stole it from or whom you wronged, and that makes perfect sense. If that person was for whatever reason dead um, or out of the country, you would pay it back to their next of kin. So you don't get off uh, uh, from the consequences simply because the person is not there. And it goes to their immediate next of kin. Um, and if there's no one else, though, there's no available next of kin, it needs to go to the priesthood, which at, at that time, basically the judges, the judicial system, um, those who would uh, make atonement and declare guilt, um, and essentially it gets donated to the priest class. And of course, the person still needs to make an atonement for their sins, which is the um, the ram of atonement. So they, they have to pay atonement uh, for their sins, and then they have to make restitution to the person that they wronged, and plus 20%, one, one fifth. But all of that would would go to the the priest, uh, the, uh, ju- the judicial authorities, um, in order to um, at least make sort of some, some semblance of restitution there. So at the end of the day, sin is consequences, but there is a mercy for those who are repentant and seek to make it right. Now, application here is that God is both just and merciful. For those who have hard hearts, the unrepentant thief, the punishment is full five times the amount. But for those with soft hearts, there is mercy. There still needs to be justice for the victim, but it encourages healing and restoration of relationship. And it's very applicable, of course, to parenting. Um, I know as a parent, I've often try to encourage my children that if they have done something wrong and if they confess it, make it right, and, and try to make it right, it will go much better for them than if I have to find out what happened myself and uh, decide you know, guilt or innocence and, and have to discipline them. So I want them to seek to make it right with their neighbor on their own and reward truth. It doesn't mean there's not going to be consequences, though. I always tell them that if they lie... It will be way worse for them than if they tell the truth. Now, telling the truth does not mean that they get off scot-free. That's not, that's not how it works. But it's way less of a punishment uh, than if they were to lie and try to hide it. Now, this law, which has to do with uh, theft, it applies to other areas too, but specifically here about theft, is way different than some of the other ancient codes. Uh, many folks talk about the Code of Hammurabi, right? A very ancient uh, code of law that people can find wisdom from. But what's very striking, if you read through the Code of Hammurabi, it required the death penalty for theft. I mean, for almost any type of stealing. There's no distinction made in Hammurabi's code between property, stealing property and stealing people. In the Code of Hammurabi, you would be put to death for stealing a person or for stealing a thing. It's just maximum severe punishment. Pretty pretty ruthless. Now, God's law makes a distinction, though, between people and property. Uh, stealing people under God's law, that does deserve death. But stealing property does not. Stealing property simply requires restitution with uh, 20% of you confess on your own and repent. Now, even today, though, judges may show mercy for confession of crimes, and sometimes today our, our judicial system encourages the plea of guilty in order to offer a lesser punishment to the person who 
uh, pleads guilty. Now, maybe that's done for the wrong reasons. Uh, it's not always done for the right reasons. You know, maybe the government just wants to save money and it wants to be as quick as possible and get it over with, not really interested in the person actually confessing their sins. Um, and, and even in those cases, the person was already uh, arrested. Uh, the case is already laid out against them. And uh, it's not like they turned themselves in. So that that needs to be kept in mind there. Uh, but of course, in this system, uh, in Israel's system, the payment goes to the victim, not to the government. It only goes to the priest, uh, the judicial branch, essentially, if there is no one else that can rightfully receive that money, no next of kin. So the system is not designed to enrich itself off of crime. That's one thing we definitely want to keep in mind when applying this to modern systems. All right, so that is our law of the day. Now we're going to move on to uh, talking about uh, lesser magistrates. And in this case, the colonies of America. I, I, we could spend a lot of time on this. I mean, this is a multi-hour discussion. And I'm going to try to cover everything in the next 20 minutes or so uh, to keep this uh, podcast within time. But uh, to give a brief, uh, a brief background... The colonies were formed by a royal charter. So, so the king of England um, granted uh, various uh, colonists groups permission to form colonies and governments. So to give an example, Virginia in the year 1606 was authorized by the king to have its own council uh, to govern and order all matters and causes according to the laws ordinances and instructions under the privy seal of the realm of England. That's a direct quote from the uh, Virginia Charter of 1606. That's just one example, right? Another example is the formation of Pennsylvania. So William Penn was granted the land in 1681 under uh, the authority of King Charles II. But about 20 years later, in 1701, he formed a charter the Pennsylvania Charter of Privileges, uh, made in October of 1701, and that was under King William III of England. Now, William Penn had been given uh, the powers and jurisdictions for the good government thereof, of, of Pennsylvania. So basically, he had unlimited authority to establish the government of the colony of Pennsylvania. And then in this part, Charter of Privileges, uh, Penn decides to form a, a general assembly, and this general assembly is going to be the form of government. And he says in the charter that the assembly uh, shall, quote, prepare bills in order to pass into laws, impeach criminals, and redress grievances, and shall have all other powers and privileges of an assembly according to the rights of the freeborn subjects of England, end quote. So essentially, these colonies are local representative bodies. They're kind of like mini parliaments for each of the colonies, and they're under the authority of the king. So they kind of have the same relationship like, like the greater parliament has with the king. So, you know, capital P parliament is over, you know, England, Wales, Scotland, Ireland, you know, the British Isles there, and governs along with the king. Uh, but these colonies are to have their own little parliaments, their own representative bodies, and they will also relate to the king, very similar on kind of a parallel uh, level with parliament. 
and they have their own elected representatives with their own taxes. Uh, an example would be the Massachusetts Charter of 1691 gives the Massachusetts colonial government the authority to collect taxes from the citizens of the colony. Now, that's the background here. Those are the, the basic relationships of the colonies and the king. Now, after the English Civil War uh, and the Glorious Revolution, 1680s after that, uh, Parliament began to gain increased authority over the king. Uh, there was that struggle that went on during that period. And, the, and Parliament began to use its authority uh, and expand its authority over the whole realm, the whole empire, not just its domain of, of the British Isles. And it, what didn't help is that there were various wars and other crises that motivated uh, Parliament to tighten its control. So, you know, you have the French and Indian War, which ended in 1763, and you have this desire for more funds and more money, right? And and Parliament had the perspective that the colonies, you know, should should pay what they, you know, what they believed to be their fair share, um, and that the colonies were kind of too independent, which they had been for quite some time, and Parliament wanted to kind of rein them in and exercise authority over them. And so Parliament begins legislating over the colonies, including taxes. And that's where we get, you know, no taxation without representation. The idea being that uh, the colonies need to have representative bodies um, in, in, the, in the legislative body, the Parliament, uh, for them to uh, be able to have uh, that kind of authority uh, over them. Now, Parliament in 1766 basically declared themselves um, over the colonies pretty firmly. Now, so this was called the Declaratory Act of 1766, and it's, it's fairly short, but essentially it is Parliament asking the king uh, to declare that Parliament... Uh, and the king, of course, have the authority uh, over the colonies. So let me read this little section here. May it be declared by the king's most excellent majesty, and with the advice and consent of the lords and commons in this parliament, and by the authority of the same, that the said colonies in America have been, are, and of right ought to be subordinate to and, de and dependent upon the imperial crown and parliament, of Great Britain, and that the King's Majesty, by and with the advice and consent of the Lords, spiritual and temporal and commons of Great Britain, in Parliament, ought to have full power and authority to make laws and statutes of sufficient force and validity to bind the colonies and people of America, subjects of the Crown of Great Britain in all cases whatsoever, end quote. Okay, so there's the idea that Yes, the king is sovereign, but so is parliament. Parliament is sovereign over the colonies. They're not parallel bodies of representation. No, no, no. The colonies are subordinate to parliament in this regard. And in the last section of this declaratory act says this, and it's pretty striking. It says, And be it further declared and enacted by the authority that all resolutions, votes, orders, and proceedings in any of the colonies whereby the power and authority of the parliament is denied or drawn into question, these are hereby declared to be utterly null and void in all purposes whatsoever. So basically, the Declaratory Act is saying, yeah, whatever the colonies say or do that goes against what Parliament wants, that's null and void. They don't have the authority. So essentially, uh, they're really uh, trying to, to pull 
uh, a lot of power over the colonies there. Now, but keep in mind, the colonies are under royal authority. It was not parliament that granted the charters. It wasn't parliament that granted uh, William Penn the uh, colony of Pennsylvania and the authority to establish uh, the charter there. Same thing for uh, Virginia or Massachusetts. Again, they are, they're parallel little mini parliaments to the greater uh, original parliament. So they're self-governing, these colonies. They're under royal authority. They have been for many years, now some over 100 years. So one parliament cannot abuse another parliament. So the colony of Virginia can't make laws or pull taxes from the colony of Massachusetts. They are not, the, the Assembly of Virginia does not represent the people of Massachusetts. So in the same way, Parliament has no authority to uh, exact taxes or make laws over the colonies. It would be not too much different than if today, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm living in Pennsylvania, it would not be too much different if, let's say, the state of Texas sends me a tax bill and I don't, I don't own any land in Texas or whatever, you know, and they require me to pay taxes to Texas or Texas passes a law that pencil that I have to obey as a citizen of Pennsylvania. That makes absolutely no sense. They don't have the authority to do that. Even though all of the states are under the authority of the president of the United States or under the authority of the constitution. Um, you can't treat the representative bodies like, like that. Now, of course, Parliament uh, doesn't really care about what the colonies have to say. Uh, not all Parliament, by the way. There are members of Parliament who were favorable toward the colonies, uh, Edmund Burke being one of them, but that party was not the party in authority. So Parliament continues to abuse its, the colonies with the king's blessing. The king doesn't stop them, and in some ways the king kind of encourages them. They deny the rights of Englishmen, so trial by jury is denied, trial by uh, jury of your peers. Uh, cases are being tried in England instead of the colonies. Um, and, and in a lot of cases, the colonial legislative bodies are dissolved and declared unlawful. And what's, what's striking about that is uh, Parliament, after the Glorious Revolution in, in the 1680s, uh, Parliament declared that the king is not authorized to dissolve it. So, so in the past, the king could dissolve Parliament, but now it can't. Now the king can't do that anymore. But it's kind of funny and ironic that Parliament thinks that it can dissolve uh, the colony's uh, legislative bodies. So the colonies form unauthorized governing bodies, one of them being the Continental Congress, and they seek to get Parliament to back down or to get the king to step up and do the right thing because the king is ultimately, ultimately responsible because of the royal charters. Um, but he does not do anything. He does not help the colonies either out of fear of Parliament or out of indifference or maybe he has malice towards the colonies and just wants to uh, get some more money. I, I don't really... I mean, there's, there's a lot of debates as to his motivations there, but either way, he does not help out the colonies. He does not do what he's supposed to do. He does not uh, fulfill the covenant obligations that he is under because of these charters. Now, in 1774, they the, the colonies send a petition to the king. This is not the only petition. There are many petitions that they send to the king, but one of them is in October 1774, the First Continental Congress. But it basically says, 
a list of grievances, one of them being that uh, there's a standing army that's being kept in the colonies without consent of the assemblies. Um, basically, uh, the, the English common law is not being applied to the colonies like it's supposed to be. Uh, the assemblies are being um, dissolved unwillingly okay, by parliament. Um, parliament is raising taxes that doesn't have the authority to do. Uh, all, all these very long lists of grievances, and they basically asked the king in one section uh, to quote, we therefore most earnestly beseech your majesty that your royal authority and interposition may be used for our relief and that a gracious answer may be given to this petition. So essentially they want him to, to get involved and to um, reassert the proper uh, authority that he has over the colonies and, and honor the agreements that the crown had made with the colonies in the past and not let parliament uh, continue to do this, not go along with parliament in, in its abuse. Um, of course, the king does not do this, does not intervene, and parliament continues to do what it wants to do, and the king basically goes along with it. We, As you might remember, there are several battles that take place uh, between the militia and the British army, Lexington and Concord in early 1775, and the colonies do offer an olive branch, it's actually called the olive branch petition, in 1775. This is after the battles of Lexington and Concord. But along with the petition to the king, they write a declaration of um, causes and necessity of taking up arms. So basically explaining why they did defend themselves against um, what they viewed as aggression in the battles of Lexington and Concord. Uh, so uh, in the petition, uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to read uh, to you here. Let me just uh, draw it up. Uh, petition to the King, July 8th, 1775. Essentially, they say this, uh, quote, uh, We therefore beseech your majesty that your royal authority and influence may be graciously interposed to procure us relief from our afflicting fears and jealousies occasioned by the system before mentioned, and to settle peace through every part of your dominions. And then, in the same petition, the uh, colonists also um, talk to the people of, of Britain, uh, the actual common people of Great Britain. And here's what they say in this section, quote, It is alleged that we contribute nothing to the common defense. To this we answer that the advantages which Great Britain receives from the monopoly of our trade far exceed our proportion of the expense necessary for that purpose. But should these advantages be inadequate, let the restrictions on our trade be removed, and we will cheerfully contribute such proportion when constitutionally required. It is a fundamental principle of the British Constitution that every man should have at least a representative share in the formation of those laws by which he is bound. And that is a quick appeal there, um, a very clear appeal to the British Constitution that in order to be bound by the laws, a person needs to have representation in the lawmaking body. Now, Parliament would say that they do represent the colonies, but that's not true because no one from the colonies is seated in Parliament. The colonies have their own mini-parliaments granted to them by the king under the royal charters. And this other parliament is trying to dissolve and overthrow those um, established 
parliaments. And so, of course, there's a problem here. Uh, there's no representation going on, and the colonists are appealing to the English Constitution. Now, in the Declaratory of Necessities and Causes of Taking Up Arms, uh, that one is about, uh, it's only two pages long. It's not uh, too uh, terrible. Uh, I encourage you to read it. Um, I'll read a couple portions here just that I thought were particularly striking. Uh, here's what they say, quote, But why should we enumerate our injuries in detail? By one statute, it is declared that Parliament can, of right, make laws to bind us in all cases whatsoever. What is to defend us against so enormous, so unlimited a power? Not a single man of those who assume it is chosen by us, or is subject to our control or influence. But on the contrary, they are all of them exempt from the operation of such laws, and an American revenue, if not diverted from the ostensible purposes for which it is raised, would actually lighten their own burdens in proportion as they increase ours. So uh, there you see that you know, it highlights not a single man in Parliament was chosen by us or subject to our control or influence. And that's very striking, right? The people who make the laws have no skin in the game. Uh, they are not subject to the same laws that they're imposing upon others. And they are not representing those whom they seek to rule. And this is clearly... Uh, an example of tyranny, clearly an abuse of power, uh, unlimited power. And so we see here that a representative body or a democratic-like body can still be tyrannical because it's seeking to have authority over a group of people that it does not represent. Let me, let me read this uh, last section here. Quote, Lest this declaration should disquiet the minds of our friends and fellow subjects in any part of the empire, we assure them that we mean not to dissolve that union which has so long and so happily subsisted between us and which we sincerely wish to see restored. Necessity has not yet driven us into that desperate measure or induced us to excite any other nation to war against them. We have not raised armies with ambitious designs of separating from Great Britain and establishing independent states. We fight not for glory or for conquest. We exhibit to mankind the remarkable spectacle of a people attacked by unprovoked enemies without any imputation or even suspicion of offense. They boast of their privileges and civilization, and yet proffer no milder conditions than servitude or death. In our own native land, in defense of the freedom that is our birthright, and which we ever enjoyed till the late violation of it, for the protection of our property, acquired solely by the honest industry of our forefathers and ourselves, against violence actually offered, we have taken up arms. We shall lay them down when hostilities shall cease on the part of the aggressors, and all danger of their being renewed shall be removed, and not before. So, again, this was sent... Um, in 1775, after the battles of Lexington and Concord. And the purpose is one last appeal to the king and parliament. Let's stop this. Please stop this abuse. And we can, we can put our arms down and we can kind of make things right here. We can fix it. Um, so that doesn't obviously work. And the, a year later, in 1776, the colonies declare their independence. 
because again, the king and parliament do not change their positions. And essentially, the Declaration of Independence is a certificate of divorce from the king and parliament. And all of this is done in a very orderly fashion, with resistance by representative bodies, lesser magistrates. Uh, the colonial governments, the Continental Congress, they're all lesser magistrates, and they are representing the colonies, and they are resisting tyrannical behavior and trying to interpose themselves between Parliament and the king uh, against the people of the colonies. And so the people have their representatives standing up for them. And uh, these colonial governments are seeking the interests of their people. They want equal treatment under English common law. They want the previously established covenants and contracts to be honored. And they want full rights as citizens under the English Constitution. And since this does not happen, after at least 10 years, because you have 1766 is when basically Parliament declares that it has ultimate authority over the colonial governments. And then 1776, 10 years later, they basically submit a certificate of divorce to uh, the, the British Parliament and Crown. So about 10 years uh, all in all uh, for all this to take place. Uh, this does not mean that you know things didn't happen before 1766. They had been happening, but uh, this is a fairly slow process when you consider um, how revolutions typically happen. And this, I would say, is not a revolution per se because it was not seeking to um, remove Parliament or kill them all or get rid of the king and establish some other form of government. It was really... Uh, to try to get the king and parliament to do what they were supposed to do and to honor the previously established contracts and covenants. And when that didn't happen, uh, and there seemed like there was no peaceful resolution, a divorce had to be, had to be made. So uh, I think this is a very good example of another great example of doctrine of lesser magistrates being applied in the modern context um, and you can see this quite in quite contrast to the French Revolution and what played out there. So that um, is everything I wanted to cover very briefly. Uh, there's so much more we could talk about, but I hope that you found this useful and interesting. And I would encourage you to look at some of those um, early colonial and British documents. Read them for yourself. Uh, they are quite interesting when you when you look at at the restraint that's being made, um, particularly by uh, by the colonial governments there. Um, so, anyways, hope that was helpful. Uh, thank you again for tuning in, and until the next time, thank you.